Good morning. Y'all know what this is. It's, it's no longer just for making phone calls, right? I can, I can text on this. I can check the scores when the Buckeyes are playing. I can play Ruzzle. I can play Words with Friends. I can get directions on here so I don't have to ask Carolyn which way to go. <laughs> she, she usually knows better than I do. But this is also something I've found that's much more uh, profound. I don't know if you found this. Maybe your phone's set up for alerts like, like mine is, on ABC 15, CNN, Fox News. This has also become, I've noticed, uh, a window uh, into the sufferings of our world. I mean, just, just this week, I had an alert that I slid over and saw that Marines had been killed in, in Chattanooga. I got another alert about a wildfire in California, and I, I go there, and there's a live video of trucks and, and cars burning on this highway. Just last night, Robin shared a video that I clicked on with Carolyn of the flooding in Wickenburg, campers and vehicles and homes. And maybe you found that as well. This, this can become a, a window into the sufferings of our world. And we all know that suffering comes in many forms. Sometimes it's national news like that. Sometimes it's closer to home. Someone we love or maybe ourselves is fighting a, a life-threatening illness. I just heard of a a store in town that laid off 28 employees. You talk about the, the suffering of people without a paycheck, now, now looking for work. It, it comes in many forms, and when it happens, we, we uh, nod along with the authors of the Bible. Job's would-be counselors said in Job 5-7, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. What does that mean? Every time I have a fire, the sparks go up. It's saying, hey, if you're born... You're going to have trouble in this world. Job himself said, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Maybe some of us have gone through something and resonated with what David wrote in the psalm. Psalm chapter 10, verse 1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Maybe you felt that. Maybe you feel that this morning. I'm going through this. Where are you, God? I think something interesting happens inside of us when suffering happens. There's a part of our heart and our emotions and our mind that, that has a little Sherlock Holmes in it when it comes to suffering in the world. We want to get answers. We want details. Not necessarily a bad thing. It's just part of how we're wired. We, we want to know the who. who. Who is it affecting? What's going on? Where is it happening? And when, when did it start? And when is it going to end? And some of those questions we can get answered by journalists and news sites and, and people that we talk to, but there's a bigger question that we wrestle with that sometimes, maybe often, doesn't get the answer that we would like. Why? Why did this happen here? Why did that happen there? Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to my child? Madam Jean Guyot said this, If knowing the answers to life's questions is absolutely necessary to you, then forget the journey. You'll never make it, for this is a journey of unknowables, of unanswered questions, enigmas, incomprehensibles, and most of all things, unfair. There are some things we can know. 
we can open our Bible and find out truth about who Jesus is and what he's done for us and many truths besides that. But what she's specifically talking about when she wrote that is we cannot always know the exact reason for a specific piece of suffering in our world. And that's where Jesus is going to go this morning. He's going to help us wrestle with how do I respond when I see suffering in my life and in the lives of those around me in the world. And I think that's so practical. Because as I say that, you guys are thinking of situations, aren't you? And maybe you're in the middle of them and you're saying, how do I respond? I'm going to give you three quick ideas that, that Jesus gives us. One is humility. It's okay to not have all the answers. It's okay. Did you know that? You don't have to be able to answer the specific question of why this specific thing is happening in this person's life. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now I've got to give you a little uh, background here. What, is, what, is, what in the world is Luke talking about whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices? We guys all know Pilate. He's the guy that, that was before Jesus when he was sent to the cross, right? The governor. He was governor for about a decade. And he's known in the history books as a cruel, kind of arrogant, cynical, cynical kind of governor. He's, he's not the governor you want ruling over you. And there are a couple stories from Israel's history that kind of set the tone for what's going on here. How many of you guys know that flags can be controversial things? Okay. We've seen that in our own culture lately, haven't we? That's not new. There, there was a historical event where Pilate, who represented the Romans, had these flags that had an insignia on them that was offensive to the Jews. It was idolatrous to the Jews. And there was a, a moment in history where he brought these flags into the Jewish temple. And the Jews could not believe that he would even dare do that. And they started to threaten him. Get that flag out of our holy temple. And Pilate looked at them and said, these flags will stay, and if you resist, I will kill you. The Jews called his bluff. They stayed there and said, go ahead, kill us. Go ahead. That's how strongly they felt about their temple. Pilate, his bluff called, walked away. He didn't really want to slaughter all those Jews. He was just bluffing, but you can imagine the tension that created. There was another scenario where Pilate wanted some funds to build a Roman aqueduct for water. And he went into the Jewish temple treasury to get funds. And when that happened, you can imagine the Jews again rebelling. You don't take our temple money to build your aqueduct. Pilate and his men at that point snuck into the temple in civilian clothes, armed underneath their civilian clothes. And they, they stealthily snuck up behind those who were rebelling and killed many of them. Some think that may be what, what's being talked about here. These Galileans whose, whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices. Galileans came in from the country to Jerusalem. Probably at Passover. And they're there with their sacrificial animals. And as they're in the act of performing their sacrifices with the help of the priest, totally vulnerable, Pilate and his men come in and kill them. And what happens when, when a tragedy happens? We want to immediately, as we said earlier, find out why. That's what, 
These people want to find out. That's why they're reporting it to Jesus. And he asked them a question when they report what happened. Jesus said, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? He answers their report with a question. There's a story told of a Jewish student of a rabbi. He goes to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, why is it every time I want to know something, you ask me a question? The rabbi says, why shouldn't I? <laughs> That's a lot of how Jesus teaches, right? These guys come to him with this report, and his question tells you what was on their mind. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? They had already put it all together. They had it all figured out. Because those guys died, they're worse than me. <laughs> that, that's why they died. I'm better than them. That's why I'm still alive. What's Jesus say in verse 3? He says, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. That's not what they wanted to hear from Jesus. They wanted him to say, yes, you're right. Those people are worse than you. You're so holy. You're so good. They're so evil. No, he says, I tell you, no. What was going on? They had a formula for suffering. It's that if someone is suffering in their life, it's automatically because they did something sinful. We see this in the Old Testament, right? Job, you remember his friends? Surely you did something, Job. Surely. They thought they had it all figured out. John chapter 9, you remember Jesus encountered a blind man. And the disciples' first question is, why is this man blinded? Did his parents sin? Or did he sin? You remember Jesus' answer? Neither. He's blind so that God might show his works through him. They, they thought they had it all figured out. The trouble with that kind of thinking is, is it breaks down. Because if suffering is always the result of sin against God, how do you explain the suffering of the prophets in the Old Testament who spoke God's truth? How do you explain the sufferings of the apostles in the New Testament who, who went throughout the world, 11 of them that we believe were martyred? How do you explain the sufferings of Jesus on the cross if suffering is always because of a personal sin? Guess what? You've got a logical breakdown now, don't you? you think it's always because of personal sin? Is it sometimes? Yeah. You look at your Old Testament, it doesn't take long. You look at Egypt. How many times did Pharaoh keep telling God, no, I will not let your people go? And God sent ten plagues on their land. Sometimes it is a result of sin. Sodom and Gomorrah, a result of sin. New Testament, you say, that's Old Testament. Ananias and Sapphira. You remember that story, huh? Two people say they're giving everything that, from the sale of a field to the church, but they're really holding back some. You remember what happened? Immediately on the spot, the husband died, then the wife comes in to figure out what happened, and she died. That was a result of lying. Paul talks about people in the New Testament who take communion in an unworthy fashion, disrespectfully, or, or in a position where they're not lined up with God. They're not confessing their sin. They're not repentant in their attitudes. And he says some of them have fallen asleep. Read the book of Revelation, all the disasters there. It's obviously God stamping out 
sinful rebellion against himself. But here's the thing. It's not always a result of personal sin. And that's where we need to be careful. Sometimes it's simply a sign of a world that's sick with sin in general. A world that's groaning. That's how Paul describes our world in Romans 8. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. I want to show you one example of a potential event that was just covered on the news this week. Read a stunning article by Catherine Schultz in the New Yorker this week. And frankly, if I lived right now in the Pacific Northwest, I'd be considering moving. Seriously. The gist of it is this. The federal government estimates 13,000 Americans will die in a major earthquake and tsunami in the Pacific Northwest. It's not a question of weather, but when. This earthquake is coming and it's overdue. Consider that the magnitude 9.0 earthquake in Japan, just a few years ago, remember that, killed more than 15,000 people in the north of Japan and injured thousands of others. Seismologists say that the quake that will strike on our Pacific Northwest coastline should be even stronger, at up to a 9.2. They call such a quake a margin rupture quake, and it's every bit as bad as it sounds. Here's the reason for it. Our entire continent sits on the North American tectonic shelf, right? Plate, I should say off the coast of the Pacific Northwest from the top of Washington State all the way down to Northern California. This is it. And another plate called the Juan de Fuca is trying to slide up under North America, but it's, it's stuck. We have an illustration over here in the big wall. Let me show you what this is. This is our continent here. This, the, this is the Cascada Mountains. This is the Cascadia, what do they call it? The Cascadia what? Bridge. The Cascadia Bridge. I, I was actually asking him, but thank you. The North American plate here and the Juan de Fuca plate here. This one's sliding up under, and eventually this is going to go down, send a huge wall of water up. That wall will go all the way over to Japan, and the other will come onto our, onto our shore within 15 minutes. And when it slips, it will unleash not only a colossal earthquake, but also that tsunami, 700 miles long, and in some places up to a 100-foot-high wall of water and whatever it's pushing, like houses and dump trucks and, and, and schools. Thousands and thousands will not escape. The New Yorker quotes a FEMA official who says, and I quote, our operating assumption is that everything west of Interstate 5 will be toast. Everything west of Interstate 5 is gone. That's Seattle, Tacoma, Portland and Olympia, Salem and Eugene wiped out altogether about 7 million people. That's not including tourists. So think of summertime. The New Yorker reports that FEMA calculations indicate the disaster will damage or destroy about a million buildings, including 3,000 schools and one-third of all fire stations. And perhaps the worst part of all of this, these sorts of earthquakes happen at regular intervals in exactly this part of the world, have forever. On average, according to seismologists, about every 240 years. So when was the last one of these? These massive 9.2 or so earthquakes? Well, the last one was more than 300 years ago, the year 1700. It struck in the Pacific Northwest and send a 600-foot wave of water all the way to Japan. So right now, on average, the Pacific Northwest is decades overdue for the really, really big one. Wow. How many of you is that the first time you saw that? Pretty heavy stuff. And why, why do I show it in the middle of this sermon? 
I show it because if and when that happens, there's going to be a desire among Christians to explain why. It's just part of that detective side of us. We want to know why. My advice for that and any other suffering in this world is this. Proceed with humility. Proceed with humility. I know some of us were already looking at those cities and comparing them to Prescott Valley, right? Proceed with humility. Sometimes suffering is a result of sin. Sometimes it's simply the result of a groaning world. So let me ask you a real practical question. When those around you suffer, your loved ones, your friends, are you quick to jump to the reason why and quick to tell them? How many of you like it when people do that in your life? Let's say you you lose a job or, or you go through a financial hardship or you get sick. Like my friend Mike, he was a youth pastor in Ohio. And he, he's fought an ongoing disease. The pastor who he used to work for sat down with him and told him, you don't have enough faith. That's why you have this. Mike's no longer at that church. That pastor thought he had a little formula figured out. Guess what? God doesn't always fit our little formula. So do you proceed with humility when those around you suffer? Let's realize, like Job's friends, the formulas don't always work. There there are times when we can read our Bible and go to church and pray. And guess what? The suffering continues. Somebody put it this way. There's if faith that says, if this goes well in my life, if I get this raise, if I stay healthy, if none of my close family members die, then I'll praise you. Then there's though faith. Though I lost my job. Though my spouse has cancer, though my business is suffering, I will trust you. We need to be those with though faith and avoid the the formulas. Humility. It's okay to not have all the answers. The second point I want to show here is look inside. Worry about yourself. Some of you have seen this video. I want to show you a little clip. Why about yourself? Can I help? No. I'll help. I don't. You can help when more out to you, okay? You can help when we are out to you. Yeah, do you okay. Have, do you have this stuff thing? Probably. You want me to help, Rose? No. Thank you. No, thank you. What do you want me to do? Why about yourself? <laughs> Why about yourself? I'll do this one, so I'm going to do that. You drive! <laughs> Why about yourself? Go drive! Go! Okay, if you're a parent, you're looking at that last part and saying there's some things to talk about here. That's not why I showed it. <laughs> I'm talking about, what's she keep telling her dad? You worry about yourself. (laughs) And that's part of what I see Jesus doing in this passage when we look at suffering. I I see him looking at this crowd and saying, you worry about yourself. He goes on to tell them another story of his own about a true event. He says in verse 4, Are those 18 when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty? There's that issue again, more sinful, more guilty. 
than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now this one's interesting because people in Jerusalem love to talk bad about people in Galilee. Sometimes like I hear people in Arizona talking about people in California. They love to talk trash about the Galileans, so of course they're going to bring up the Galileans that got killed. Surely they were more guilty. So what's Jesus going to do? He's going to tell them a story about some people that live in Jerusalem, some of your own. They're out by this tower near, near the pool of Siloam. And this tower collapses. And 18 of them are killed. 18 of your own. He's making this real personal now. He's saying, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. What's he saying here? He's saying that all suffering in this world ought to be a wake-up call to us. This is people perish physically in suffering in this world. We all stand the risk of perishing spiritually if we do not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He uses the word repent. To change my mind about sin, turn towards Jesus for my salvation. Lest you too repent, you will all perish. Suffering is a wake-up call. You ever look at it that way when you see suffering in the world? Wow, my, my time's coming. Am I ready? Hebrews 9.27, just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. This worry about yourself idea. The Jews had a lot of privileges that God had blessed them with. And some, not all, had become proud in that. Romans 2 verse 19 Paul's talking to the Jews. He says, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, these are good words for us too in the church. If you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Here we go. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? What's he saying to all of us? He's saying, you who love to, to point out the sins of others, have you, have you taken a look inside lately? Have you evaluated yourself? John MacArthur said it this way, since all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. Everyone deserves death. The real question is not why bad things happen to good people, but why good things happen to bad people. That they do reflects God's compassion, grace, and mercy to undeserving sinners. We've all heard of the missionary Jim Elliot. Gave his life to reach the Alka Indians. He said this, When it comes time to die... Make sure that all you have to do is die. That's powerful. Because none of us knows when it's coming. He's saying, be ready. Settle it with Jesus. Have faith in Him. Be saved. So, Jesus, in the second point, says, look inside, worry about yourself. And I think the practical application is, one, before I look at the sins of the world, have I taken a good long look inside? 
before I look at that sin of a brother or a sister, have I taken a good long look inside, made sure that I'm right with God? And then, am I ready to die? Is that all I have to do when I die is die? Have I trusted in Jesus? Have I repented? Final point here. I want to ask the question, what if that suffering in their lives is because of sin? What if it is? Because sometimes it is. He's going to tell them a story. He told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. And he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree. I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. We had one tree. It wasn't a fruit tree, but it would not grow. It had to be dug up. Maybe you've done that. This, this story, we believe, is a story primarily about the nation of Israel that also has ramifications for us. Jesus is talking about the nation that he's come to. It says in the Bible he was rejected by his own. His own would not receive him. Why do we believe it's Israel? Well, this picture of Israel as a plant was common in the Old Testament. There's a beautiful picture. If you like poetry, Isaiah chapter 5. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. God had a vineyard. It was Israel. He dug it up and cleared it of its stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. He did everything necessary to prepare this for optimal fruit growing for Israel. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Jesus came to his nation. He wanted to be received by his nation as the king, as the Messiah. And yet he was rejected. And in this story about the tree, you see both the justice and the mercy of God. Justin Presnell really fleshed this out as we were talking this week. The, the justice of God, you see, hey, I've looked at the tree and there's no fruit. It deserves to be cut down. And God, before we come to Jesus, could look at any of our lives and say that. There's, there's no fruit there. This, this life deserves to be cut down. But you see the mercy of God in the other man. He says, Sir, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then, then cut it down. 
you see this patience and this mercy. That word fertilize, kind of boring in this translation. There's an older translation that used the phrase dung it. <laughs> Not dang it. Let me dung it. <laughs> I'm going to put some poop around that tree because poop makes things grow, right? If you've got a garden, you know that. Sometimes it is sufferings that God allows into our lives that can cause us to wake up and see our need for the Savior. God had hoped that for Israel and their own punishment throughout the years. That through this poop, they would wake up and turn to Him. C.S. Lewis says it this way, We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see this balance of God's justice and yet his mercy, allowing more time. He wants them to come to him. But we should never mistake that time. We should never take God's kindness for granted. You know that? Paul says God's kindness should lead us to repentance. Now is the day of salvation. Some of you have heard my grandfather's story of how he came to faith in the Lord. My grandfather had a son, my uncle, who had a broken marriage, and, and he showed up at Christmas time to take some gifts to the kids from his estranged wife at, at her house. She had some brothers there that threw him off the porch into the snow and the mud and beat him up. And so my uncle left the property, came back and got my grandpa. And my grandpa said, I've got a gun. Let's go back. They grabbed a gun, got in their vehicle, and my grandpa tells it this way. We got in the vehicle, and I could not move my hands to start the vehicle. I could not do it. That Sunday, they went to church. They weren't regularly attending church. They walked down front, talked to the preacher, and told him what God had done to, to preserve them. And they both gave their lives to the Lord. Because they knew God had shown mercy in stopping them from an act that would have ruined both of their lives. Now how foolish would it have been for them to say, hey, God spared us that time. Now we know He's on our side. Let's try this again. Let's keep on down this path. No, what they do, they woke up. They said, God was kind to us. We need to repent and come to Him. That's, that's the message of this, this tree. Wow, if God's given you time, don't take it for granted. Use it as your opportunity to come to salvation. You see his mercy towards a nation that was suffering from the sin of unbelief. How do you see his mercy? Well, he was there for three years desperately preaching his word to them, wanting them to receive him. And then after he left, there were 40 years of the apostles in the early church witnessing to that nation. But still, as a nation, they rejected him and in A.D. 70, if you know your history, the Romans, they destroyed it. They destroyed Israel. So what if suffering is because of someone's sin? You know, it's easy for us to find that reason and say, I, I want to find that out so I can write that person off and just ignore them. It's their fault anyway. Sometimes that's what we're guilty of. Jesus knew Israel's suffering was because of their sin. Yet, listen to him in Luke chapter 19. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. 
and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He wept over it. And then he proceeded to go into the city and give his life for it. Because he loved them so much. Even though their coming judgment was because of their sin. And I look at that and say, is that my response when I know someone's suffering is because of their sin? Is it to write them off or is it to be like Jesus, to weep over them and pursue them and do all I can to help them meet Jesus? Christian Foster Care is a group that I've been talking with the past month or two. There's a guy down in Phoenix named Cody Fort. We've been talking about all the families that are broken in our state. There's a lot of them. I think the number in foster care right now is like 18,000 kids in Arizona. And Cody called me because he's part of a preventive program where his hope is to keep families from being separated in the first place. A family runs into trouble before they need to send the kid into the state system. Let's see if the church can do something about it. And what he was asking me about is, hey, you've got several missional communities. Let me tell you how a missional community can help with this. We've got a kid that needs a home. Maybe one person in the missional community puts the kid up in a home. It could be 30 days. That's the average time for this kind of thing. And the rest of the missional community helps out with meals, diapers, and food, and transportation. And while you're doing that, the family, we're working on them to get them plugged into a small group. If it's in your area, we work with them in one of your missional communities. If it's in Phoenix, we work with them to get them where they need to be so that their family can be restored as they meet the the hope and the grace of Jesus. And I said, you know what? That's a powerful idea. I think at our quarterly training, we're going to ask him to come and share with our missional community leaders a little bit of his vision about how we could be a part of meeting these families with the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. What's the other option? Their crime, their drugs, their whatever got them into that. Just let them suffer. Let those kids go to the state. But what I see in Jesus is a Savior who wept over Jerusalem met them where they were, and gave his life for them. Challenges, will we be the same? Katrina told me a beautiful story this morning that I think gives us in a, in a picture form. She had a little bird that she wanted to bring to the kids, a little bird named Chirp, a little baby bird that she was going to show the kids in the children's ministry how she feeds it. But then before we knew it, she texted Carolyn back and said, Chirp flew away. But we didn't know the whole story until we got here. (laughs) Katrina had been taking care of Chirp in a little cage. And Chirp's mom flew very near the cage to a tree. And and Katrina saw the bird's mom. And so she got Chirp out of the little cage and lifted Chirp up like this. And she said Chirp flew right back to his mom. And as she shared that story in her heart on it, she said, isn't that a beautiful picture of what we ought to do? There there are people in this world separated from their Heavenly Father by their sin. Will I do my part to lift them towards their Savior? Will I do my part to share the good news, to meet them where they're at? 
or will I write them off because they're suffering, is because of their sin? A couple of concluding thoughts we want to just review. The first one was, when I see suffering, do I proceed with humility? Not needing to have all the answers, trusting that God has the answers and, and leaving it there. Do I look inside? Do I worry about myself? Am I evaluating my own sin and saying, God, show me where I need to repent? And am I ready to die? And third, if I find someone who is suffering in their sin, will I write them off? Or will I love them like Jesus? Father, I thank you for this message. It's very relevant. This topic of suffering. Every human that's ever lived knows it tastes it, sees it. And I just thank you that you were kind enough through your son to give us some clear teaching on it, Lord. And I pray that we would reflect his heart when we encounter suffering. Help us to be humble. Help us to look inside and help us to love our world like Jesus. And Lord, I, I just pray for anyone in this room right now that, that is going through suffering. I wrote down what Jeremiah wrote in his book in Jeremiah chapter 17. And I pray this as a, a blessing over you if you're walking through suffering. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Father, we know that the heat does come. We know that the drought comes. I pray that you would fulfill this promise in the lives of your people, that they would be like that tree, roots in the water of Jesus Christ. You bring that reality to be in a very tangible way this week. Father, as we prepare to give our offerings, we pray it would be one more act of worship this morning. Just as we sing, open your word. Just as we witness during the week and gather together and serve. May giving be a part of our worship as well. May it go towards the cause of spreading this good news of Jesus Christ. The, the news that a suffering world needs. The news that we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.